Good afternoon, all. Welcome to our discussion entitled COVID-19 Vaccines, Novel Healthcare and Employment Issues. We started 2020 with an unknown virus and are ending it with a devastating surge across the country. So the emergency approval of the Pfizer vaccine late Friday evening is incredible news and being touted as nothing short of a medical miracle. As everyone knows, Operation Warp Speed has resulted in the ex expedited development of several COVID vaccines and more are expected to come. But for now, the supply of vaccines is limited and triaging recipients is a complicated undertaking, giving competing principles and equity issues. Hospitals and their workforce are the superheroes of 2020. And here, like earlier in the year, when they were facing extensive federal and state regulations addressing COVID, they now need to rapidly digest and prepare for the vaccine rollout and administration. While hospitals have been preparing for this for a while and already provided their first vaccines to members of their workforce, the vaccine options and supply increases will make a monumental task of vaccinating the entire country, which will be increasingly complicated. So our discussion today is focused on issues we know our hospital and health system clients are or should be thinking about in three primary areas, vaccine allocation, employer issues, and privacy. More is certain to develop, so hospital work plans will necessarily be living documents that will need to account for changes, and we will continue our discussion over the coming months. So our panel today is part of our COVID resource team. With us is Sandy DeVarco, Jen Geeter, Michelle Strohero, and Kristen O'Brien, who is our colleague from McDermott Plus Consulting. So before we get started, I wanted to thank each of you, as I know you have been working tirelessly to advise our clients on COVID-related issues since March, and are continuing to work on these novel and challenging issues. So I know we've been honored to do our part in supporting our health industry clients in this truly unprecedented, unprecedented time. So with that, let's get started on our discussion. So question one um, is for Kristen. Let's start with a little background. There are obviously lots of issues for our hospital clients to consider as they prepare to provide the vaccines. Now that Pfizer has been approved, what can we expect? How is it being distributed and how will it actually reach Americans? Great, so we have started to see the vaccine rolling out and Operation Warp Speed has devised a system where all the vaccines are gonna be ordered through the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention or the CDC. And they're gonna be providing the initial allocations to states and localities. And then the individual states' plans will actually govern how the systems and sites of care and where the vaccine will actually be distributed and provided. So the result of this is it really creates a patchwork system. You need to understand what your state plan is and in some places, even your city plan. They're gonna really be devising where and how the states receive the vaccine and then which sites will then distribute it. It's a complicated system. Um, each state, we understand as we're starting to review them, have different approaches. Um, but we did see that most of them are trying to work quickly and get this vaccine out as um, rapidly as possible to the Americans. Great, thanks, Kristen. And Sandy, why don't you further elaborate a little bit on state plans? How did states select providers and who has access to the, these first distributions? 
Sure. As Kristen explained, the patchwork that's been created with the structure that's in place has states, and in some cases, major cities, for example, here in Illinois, Chicago has a separate plan, for example. But these plans were all developed, focusing largely on population size, disease burden, which is a factor of positivity and hospitalization rates, for example, and factors of equity through an equity lens to ensure that the vaccine is distributed equitably in each state and locality. Taking these things into account, these regional structures have been developed uh, that will land the vaccine at a number of regional you know, sort of hub or main location sites, primarily for this first tranche from Pfizer, hospitals and healthcare systems in various regions that have the capacity to handle not only vaccinating the individuals, their workforce and others, but also storing the vaccine, as we'll talk about in a bit, both the sheer volume of vaccine and some of the supply chain issues, particularly with this Pfizer ultra cold requirements for the vaccine, uh, will help explain why this structure, while a bit, you know, as Kristen said, patchwork, patchwork in nature, uh, will help get the vaccine in its proper form and strength to the population. If you've been selected to receive an allotment of the vaccine, there are obviously lots of logistical issues, but um, we are the lawyers. So why don't we discuss some of the challenges of those logistics that have legal or regulatory implications that we're starting to hear about? So, um, you know, the first is an ongoing process to register as potentially an eligible provider. So Karen, in your question, um, you talked about being designated as a provider that um, has been elected to serve as a, as a uh, vaccinating hub. So there's an application that the CDC has issued. Um, most states have their own website to turn that, that CDC application in. Some providers, as, as Sandy mentioned, have already heard. Um, and the vaccine is, is en route or has arrived um, to begin a vaccination process. In other cases, there may be the opportunity for additional providers to enter into that agreement with the CDC. So you know, many providers are completing that application and getting it on file with the state, even if they may not hear for a while um, that they are going to be um, selected. In addition, a lot of providers cross state lines um, and there are processes at the state level um, for cross-registration. You know, once you have been designated um, as a, a, a registered vaccinator, um, in addition to all of the ongoing cold storage challenges that Sandy mentioned, um, and, and that is not a one-time uh, challenge. As the vaccine ramp up continues, the storage um, burden will increase and it will also disperse um, across the health system to, to more of its um, remote locations. Um, these registered providers will also uh, need to begin to think about how they will branch out and register uh, beyond their own workforces. And we'll talk a bit more about that later in this program. Sandy, what would you like to add? Sure, I think as you highlighted, Jen, the, the storage issue is kind of an upfront issue and our hospital and health systems in the US know how to handle uh, medications that require special handling. So here with the Pfizer vaccine in particular, there's the sort of the ultra cold storage and transportation requirements. There's specific requirements about how often and how you can enter the vials with a needle and, and get the vaccine out. So those are all things hospital and health systems should be well equipped to handle. 
the volumes, though, as you mentioned, are going to continue to expand. So here, if you're dealing with hospitals and health systems that are receiving this first tranche of vaccine, storage may not be an issue. They're going to have plenty of space and time to sort this out. But as the process grows and with the other vaccine types that are in the pipeline having slightly different considerations attached to them, there is going to be a bit of a learning curve and a need to stay on top of how you're handling all of these uh, vaccines and making sure that you meet all of the requirements that they maintain their efficacy and strength up to the time of injection. There's also some logistics, even now with the smaller volumes of vaccine for these hospitals and health systems that are receiving the first tranche of Pfizer vaccine, setting up a space for vaccination. And I think we've all probably seen some of the pictures in the paper. They'll show the local large hospital and a big empty room full of tables and chairs that is ready to go. But if you magnify that, you know, multiply that by the amount of additional vaccines and vaccination that is going to be required in order to really get the country going. But if you think about the number of employees and other staff and other community members that are going to eventually need the vaccine or want the vaccine, again, something just to look at in terms of growth going forward. There's also been some concerns raised about the fact that some of the vaccines are a two-dose regimen. So it may be perfectly feasible to get folks in for that first shot, but while healthcare providers or those who are resident in long-term care facilities are more likely to be around and be available for a second dose of vaccine, looking ahead to making sure that whatever processes are put in place for reminders and educating everyone on the need for that second dose is important as well, because if you don't have the second dose, you're not going to have the full effect of the vaccine. It's not going to carry out all the goals everyone wants it to have. So those are all things that now, if you can set a good groundwork and get a process in place, it will hopefully help with those broader efforts in the community going forward. One other thing that I know has come up for a lot of hospitals that we've been speaking with are who's actually giving the vaccination. And it sounds kind of silly, but really it varies by state yet again. It's a scope of practice question and state licensing agencies are really going to be the main arbiters of who's able to hold that syringe. So nurses, doctors, kind of a no-brainer, you know that those are healthcare professionals who are qualified to give an injection. But some states have recognized that it may not go much further than that. And they've actually taken steps to expand the scope of practice for other healthcare providers like pharmacists, EMTs, even dentists to authorize them specifically to administer the vaccine. So that's gonna help increase the volume of healthcare professionals that are available. And hospitals need to be careful because it may be tempting to have unlicensed providers like medical assistants or CNAs help out in some of these large vaccine efforts. But you need to be mindful that that may not be appropriate or permissible under state law. States may see going forward that they need to expand that role. And if they do, that's something that needs to be tracked. But for now, you need to be careful that in your state, the types of providers who are actually administering the vaccinations have the authority to do that. Great, thank you, Sandy. Um, and certainly we'll be keeping our eyes on that additional flexibility that may be provided um, from state to state. So Kristen, maybe before we get too far along, can you give us um, some background regarding the reimbursement of the vaccine and other financial considerations? Sure. So I think the easier side is to look at the patients. Um, the government has really said that they're going to cover costs for cost sharing for patients, whether the individual is insured under Medicare, Medicaid, private plans, or even uninsured. So there is pretty broad um, recognition through the Public Health Emergency Authority that the government is covering not only the vaccine itself, but the ancillary kit. 
the, the larger question is really the reimbursement for provider time in, in giving the shot. And as we just sort of discussed, I think that's not going to be a short and quick process. And especially for patients, this is not going to be just their quick flu shot where they walk in, get the shot on their arm and walk out the door. There's going to be a lot of coordination about when they have to come in for their follow-up shot, um, potential adverse side effects, how do they report, who do they contact. Um, and that process is likely going to take a significant amount of time. Right now, Medicare is, about, is proposed sort of a pretty low reimbursement rate, um, and it varies for the dose of the vaccine. The first is about $16, and then for the second and final dose, it, it's a little bit more around $28. Um, so that's another consideration that we want providers to think about when, if they are a vaccinator site, who is going to be the person that's actually giving this vaccine? As we mentioned, there's a variety of different staff that are, are, are available and could potentially give the shot. And that does vary across states, but it might not be you know, your primary care physician. It might be a nurse. It might be someone that, that can deliver the vaccine quickly while someone else sort of provides the, the background education about the vaccine and all the necessary information for patients. There's also going to be questions about for uninsured patients. There will be the requirement that providers have to sort of submit claims um, for their provider relief funding for that, that for that coverage and sort of what exactly that process looks like. Will it, you know, how quickly that reimbursement will come through the door is another question. Um, so all of those issues I think will be, be things to be watched and, and things also we need to consider when you're actually thinking through the process of delivering the vaccine. All right, thanks, Kristen. Um, our next question, I think again, Kristen and Jen can weigh in on as well as some others perhaps but the answer will be evolving. What do we know now about who can get the vaccine? So I'm happy to start. So there was general recommendations from um, ACIP, which is an advisory board to the FDA about who should sort of receive the vaccine first. These are, are recommendations. They are not required to be adopted and they're, they're sort of guidance for the CDC. But again, it comes down to the state sort of actual decision-making and planning about who should get it. Pretty much everyone is on board for this first phase 1A, as they're calling it, that healthcare workers are, are, should be sort of prioritized and they're the immediate ones that are going to be receiving the vaccine. And the sort of second subgroup is individuals at long-term care facilities, as they've been really sort of hit the hardest um, and have the highest mortality rates associated with COVID-19. It gets a little bit more in the weeds and a lot trickier as we get into more detail with the populations. And so I think the next tranche will be even more complicated when we begin to talk about questions of essential employees. But even the definition of healthcare workers has some you know, related questions to it. Do you prioritize people that are seeing patients? Um, do you prioritize those that are more at risk that have comorbidities? How do you really break down into those decisions and how do, you know, who makes those decisions? I think that's not gonna just be at the state level, but the actual vaccinators will have to sort of figure out how they prioritize even within the healthcare worker definition specific populations. And I'll let Sandy maybe add on a little bit more to that. Sure, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but I, I, I do think that last piece you mentioned, Kristen, is going to become incredibly important and perhaps somewhat divisive in some communities, and that is how that healthcare worker definition is carried through. Um, and some of that, as we're seeing already with some of the news reports of how healthcare uh, providers are making those decisions, is, is coming to the fore already. So right now, in this initial phase, we don't have enough uh, of the vaccine 
to provide a double dose to even the first agreed upon 1A group. So that really throws some of these difficult choices into sharper relief. As uh, additional vaccines perhaps secure um, emergency, use uh, emergency use authorization as well, and as production ramps up, we will still have other constraints, many of which Sandy, you mentioned in terms of storage and, and who can give the vaccine and space capacity. Um, but some of the immediate uh, real life rationing decisions um, may be somewhat alleviated. I think the other challenge is that even among um, equal healthcare workers, there are gonna be differences um, if institutions were designated to provide the vaccine versus if they are at institutions that were not. Um, and there's a whole set of issues that are attendant um, to both sides of that equation um, to enable the vaccine to reach uh, healthcare workers at, at institutions that won't be receiving the vaccine itself. Um, I think for now, healthcare institutions are a little bit on their own. Um, obviously with good faith, transparency, equity to try to figure out um, across a few different uh, principles, how to approach this. Who's at most risk of contracting COVID? Who's at most risk of um, spreading COVID? Who has borne the greatest burdens within that um, healthcare provider community? I think the other piece here that, that Warrens mentions is it may not only be healthcare providers within healthcare institutions. There may be other types of uh, essential workers within healthcare institutions that bear significant risk. Um, individuals who, who deliver the food to patient rooms, individuals who are on the janitorial and cleaning staff, um, individuals at the C-suite who have to be coming in um, and moving around the institution. These are all you know, people serving essential functions just in different ways. And so we are seeing that institutions are trying to first figure out who wants the vaccine. Not all institutions are gonna mandate it. Michelle, I know you're gonna speak about this. So trying to gauge interest and perhaps the presence of the antibodies should bear on that priority list again, while we have um, you know, these, these vaccine shortages to try to create um, lists and priority lists and to think about how to message that across your institution um, to sort of understand and, and, and be accountable for the fact that there won't be enough right away and to try to create a conversation across your workforce about how you're approaching this so that people feel that there is transparency and that um, the institution is being open and honest about the tough choices that it's facing. Thanks, Janet. I know we're gonna talk a little more about how hospitals are thinking about that prioritization uh, in their workforce, but before we do, let's back up a little and discuss some of the employment issues and what hospitals need to be thinking about with their employer hat on. And so Michelle, um, we don't wanna leave you out. So first question here is can employers, hospital and health systems as the employer here, mandate the vaccine to their workforce? Yeah, so for the question of can employers mandate the vaccine, the short answer is yes, probably. And I have to give that lawyer caveat today because we look to the EEOC for confirmation on what employers can and can't do under federal employment laws. We're still waiting for the EEOC to issue specific guidance on the COVID-19 vaccination specifically. 
Uh, it deferred providing guidance on the COVID-19 vaccination until there was one that was approved and ready to roll out. Uh, employment lawyers across the country are hitting refresh on the EEOC webpage waiting for that guidance. Uh, while we wait, the EEOC has pointed us to its past guidance on uh, issues like uh, mandating the flu vaccination, and we can also look to the EEOC's guidance in other COVID-19 areas, uh, like its position on mandatory uh, viral testing. And all signs point to yes, an employer will be able to uh, mandate the vaccine. A mandatory vaccine policy simply has to be job-related and consistent with business necessity or justified by a direct threat. And the EEOC has previously deemed COVID-19, unsurprisingly, to be a workplace direct threat. Um, so with respect to viral testing. So I, I do expect the EEOC will confirm in short order that a vaccine can be required by an employer subject to some legally mandated exceptions. Great, thanks, Michelle. And to go a little deeper on that, if an employer decides to mandate a vaccine, can you walk us through what types of exceptions they would have to make to, to do so? Absolutely. So there are two federal employment laws that will require employers to make potential exceptions to a mandatory vaccination policy. That's the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA that protects employees uh, with disabilities. And then Title VII, which in this context, we're talking about employees who have sincerely held religious beliefs. And then to, to layer onto that, several states have their own state-specific laws uh, that will require similar considerations. Um, so under both the ADA and Title VII, employers may be required to provide reasonable accommodations for employees uh, where doing so doesn't constitute an undue burden. And in practice, this is typically a pretty individualized analysis. Uh, employers can require employees making exception requests to provide reasonable supporting documentation in order to verify the basis for their request and also to help the employer to identify and determine potential accommodations that can be made. And then from there, the analysis differs a little bit between the ADA and Title VII. Uh, the ADA would excuse an employer from making an accommodation, but only if uh, doing so would pose a significant difficulty or expense. On the Title VII side, an employer may be excused from providing an accommodation if there's more than a de minimis cost or burden to the employer. So in either case though, uh, the analysis of whether to provide an accommodation is going to be both employer and employee specific. So many of our healthcare clients, healthcare employers generally are uniquely strongly situated to require the vaccine, uh, just given the fact that their employees have potential heightened proximity to COVID-19 exposure, as well as proximity to higher risk patient populations. And then layering further onto that, it's going to be an employee specific analysis because uh, an accommodation that we might be able to make for, for example, an office worker who potentially could work remotely for a period of time uh, may not be an available accommodation we can offer to a nurse who is treating COVID-19 patients every day. So employers are going to need to consider factors like what is the employee's underlying limitation? Uh, what is the employee's job? How might that affect our options for accommodation? And what are the accommodations we're considering? Might they pose safety risks? 
Great. Well, sticking on this topic for just another minute, Michelle, given what you've just described uh, and assuming employers can, with that further guidance, mandate vaccines subject to those exceptions, should they? And what are you seeing and hearing at this point? Yeah. Yeah, the can question is kind of the easy question. The real question employers are grappling with right now is should they mandate the vaccine or alternatively, should they implement a strongly recommend policy, but it's okay if you opt out. So a few things that employers should be thinking about right now. Uh, one is the administrative burden, right? So if you mandate the flu, the, excuse me, if you mandate the COVID-19 vaccination, um, there would be potentially an increased administrative burden on your workforce to track compliance with the mandate, as well as the expected increased administrative burden on your HR team and your legal team in fielding these exception requests from employees. And given the uh, you know, the, the reporting on Americans and uh, the propensity to either want or not want to get the vaccination, we expect there's going to be a significant population of employees pushing back against mandatory uh, vaccination requirements. Um, in addition to the, the administrative burden is the potential legal exposure. So with a mandatory vaccination program, uh, one difficulty that employers will face is administering it in a way that is as uniform as possible, despite the fact that it's quite an individualized analysis. Uh, much of the whether to accommodate analysis is employee specific, but it leaves employers open to potential discrimination claims to the extent that you, know, you, you, you provide an accommodation for one person and then deny an accommodation for a similarly situated person. So this is going to require employers to be coordinated in their efforts in administering exceptions. Um, in addition to that, for any employee who we potentially have to deny an accommodation to, uh, there's potential exposure for litigation on a failure to accommodate claim, either under the ADA or Title VII. And ultimately, the denial may be warranted and legally justified by the employer. Uh, but putting my litigation hat on for just a moment, that typically doesn't prevent you know, a whole host of potential claims anyway. And we fully expect there to be a wave of litigation related to uh, accommodation denials from employees. Um, and because this area is relatively untested and completely untested with respect to the COVID-19, these lawsuits are going to be more challenging to defeat on summary judgment, given the open questions of fact. Uh, was it truly an undue burden, for example? Uh, and then finally, uh, wrongful termination claims. A truly mandatory program will have consequences if employees opt out or simply refuse to get the vaccine. Uh, and that could look like an unpaid administrative leave or a potential termination, which likewise could give rise to potential legal claims. Um, finally, there's also some concern given the unknowns and the potential side effects, long-term long side effects of the vaccine, um, that an employee who's required to get the vaccine who then becomes ill or injured might be eligible to bring a claim against their employer. Um, typically, these types of claims would be swept into workers' compensation and healthcare employers should also look at whether the PrEP Act may provide additional immunity. And in particular, those hospitals and health systems that are administering the vaccine or acting in a program planner capacity. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, mandating the vaccine may also provide protection for employers because, of course, if, with a mandatory program, you're going to have greater participation. And so the hope would be that you'll have a safer and healthier workforce. And in addition, 
Employers who mandate the vaccine may see PR benefits, including providing patients and customers with an increased sense of safety and confidence. Um, that said, uh, to your question about what we're seeing, I think given the potential risks and burdens of mandating the vaccine, and that we're still waiting right now for EEOC guidance, I'm not surprised that we are seeing many healthcare employers considering to make the vaccine voluntary, at least at this initial phase, opting to strongly encourage it uh, until we have more information. Great, and I, I think that is what we are starting to see. So Sandy, let's pivot back to you. In light of um, what Michelle just mentioned, as well as the definitional issues around the term healthcare workers that Kristen and Jen touched on, how are hospitals thinking about prioritizing their workforce? And importantly, how are they providing transparency and accountability in these decisions, as well as managing the expectations of their workforce? Sure. You know, I, I think as Michelle indicated, you know, that the general consensus that we're hearing from hospital and health system clients is that they are not at this point in time making COVID-19 vaccination mandatory. Rather, they're looking at systems for employees and staff to either opt in affirmatively or to just be considered in, in certain classes and, and categories that we'll talk about momentarily. You know, there was actually a, a scene in the 2011 movie Contagion where they had a vaccine available for the you know, viral agent in that movie and there was a birthday-based lottery. And that seemed like total fiction, but that type of selection process is actually something that's being considered as part of this process even today. Okay. So in various uh, structures we've heard about around the country and some have read about as well, they've been in, in the papers and the press, healthcare systems and hospitals that are receiving particularly this first tranche of vaccine when there's just only so many doses to go around are doing things like lotteries. They're doing things like identifying staff in various uh, types of work and putting them first and establishing almost a triage, if you will, among their staff and then either doing lotteries or opt-ins. In some cases, they've even asked staff to um, think long and hard and think ethically and to put themselves in a line of where would you fall as amongst all these other workers. Um, you can see how any of these systems could have issues and none of them are perfect, but neither is the situation we find ourselves in right now. It is interesting, as among hospitals, as Jen alluded to earlier, there's definitely some different perspectives on who falls into these different categories. It seems fairly universal that frontline healthcare workers, meaning those individuals that have hands on a pa patients that have COVID, whether in a COVID unit, an ICU, or in an ED, are sort of rising to the top of the first groups that are going to end up getting the vaccine. But there's a whole additional segment of the workforce, and that includes environmental services workers, dietary staff, and other support staff who are regularly in rooms and having contact with body fluids and other things that are quite contagious. So it's not just nurses, it's not just doctors and respiratory therapists. You have to really look at the, the holistic view and see that. There's also some facilities that are specifying that things like code blue teams or resuscitation teams were they have a high probability of being involved in sort of aerosolized events where there is a lot of body fluids going around in an emergency, even if they're not in one of those other groups to have those be considered as well. But even then, when you create these strata and these different layers, trying to apply the small number with this first tranche of vaccines is going to be incredibly challenging. So some of those other factors, 
like individuals who may self-select to not get it right away because they know they are otherwise healthy or individuals who maybe have other healthcare conditions who recognize that they are more vulnerable and more vulnerable to pass along the disease to others may be uh, those that have to have special considerations taking into account as well. Having there be organization on how those individuals are sort of lined up virtually, if you will, you know, is still developing and there's a number of ways that that can be accomplished as we'll talk about momentarily. But you know, some of the practical considerations here too with your staff are just making sure, as was mentioned before, that there's a, a planning and an accountability so that once the vaccine is rolled out, while there's nothing special about giving it, it is not, doesn't require special equipment or special needles or anything of that nature. There are some particular considerations about making sure that these healthcare workers who are receiving it, particularly those who are needed on the front lines providing care to patients, receive it in a way that accounts for some of the things that have been reported anecdotally, like reactions and adverse reactions after receiving the vaccine. So making sure that you don't perhaps immunize your entire ICU in one day is probably a good idea so that you're sure you have staff in case any individuals do have reactions after the vaccine and you're able to plan for that. So some of that is quite a bit of planning as you can imagine on a hospital to hospital basis. Once the vaccine rolls out to other healthcare providers, there could be similar concerns, but I think that the acute, more acute the location where the individuals are being vaccinated, the workers, the more acute the concerns to make sure that it's done carefully and that it goes to the right population. The transparency piece is key and it is something that is good to see. And some of the news reports, uh, many of us have read at this point, make clear that not only are hospitals and health systems being upfront with their employees and their staff, but they're being upfront with the public about how they're making these determinations. There are definitely some considerations once you get beyond the frontline healthcare workers and the frontline staff that are highly exposed. When you're looking at executives or you're looking at others, you know, there are some considerations that need to be taken into in, mind, and that could be even the health of those individuals and how much they actually need to be on site. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's really up to the healthcare system that is administering the vaccines to make sure that that is clear and that everyone understands what the expectations are and what the process is, both for the vaccination and the immediate period after the vaccination. Thanks, Sandy. Um, Continuing on, now that we have a cohort of employees that have opted in or won the so-called lottery, what does the consent look like? These are obviously patients, but they are also employees. And so while the FDA has provided the vaccine information sheet since Friday, uh, state hospital associations and states have suggested forms or additions to forms. Given all of that competing information, what are some concrete steps hospitals can take on consent-related steps? Sure, so um, the, the EUA comes with, as you mentioned, a fact sheet. It is up on the internet. There's a fact sheet for the recipients of the vaccine and caregivers. There's also a fact sheet for healthcare providers acting in their provider capacity. Um, these fact sheets uh, will change uh, depending on the vaccine. So this is a specific fact sheet for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, and it may also be updated um, as more information uh, comes to light about these uh, vaccinations, but also as um, the FDA and the CDC hear back 
from the front line about what kinds of questions are people getting, what's confusing about the form. Um, this is all happening um, you know, at, a, at a rapid rate. Um, the fact sheet explains what is known and frankly unknown about the vaccine. This is, you know, these vaccines are receiving emergency use authorization. That means that we know less about them um, than we would under a typical FDA approval process. And we're balancing, um, we're balancing speed um, with knowledge to a certain extent. And that's, that's the trade-off. These fact sheets include a lot of the information you would see in a typical consent. How will the vaccine be administered? What are some of the known risks? As, as Sandy mentioned, there are some well-documented side effects, especially with the second dose. Um, it's important to reassure people that these are expected and in many cases, in some ways, a good sign. It shows that your, you know, your body is responding um, to the vaccine. It includes information about the, uh, about the FDA's process. Um, it includes some ingredient information because there are some concerns about allergies and I've already heard you know, some question about whether that portion of the fact sheet may need to be revisited. Does it actually inform people about what they need to know about their aller allergy history and whether or not they should take uh, the vaccine? And it includes a little basic information about how their information will be shared. Um, if the healthcare worker that's getting this vaccine is, is, is a nurse or a doctor, just their own um, deep understanding of healthcare, of vaccines, of COVID um, may make the fact sheet somewhat you know, less important. They're of course entitled to it, but they're, they're extremely sophisticated on these issues. Um, but as we've talked about, not everyone who gets this vaccine, even in the very early days, is necessarily going to be someone with a healthcare background, even though they're from a healthcare institution. And so we can expect that there will be questions um, and this really goes in some ways back to even Kristen's point about the time it will take to counsel some people through the decision to be vaccinated above and beyond the fact sheet. So the fact sheet is a set document and it doesn't require a signature. So if we're talking about consent, we're really talking about a document that goes above and beyond the fact sheet. And it really needs to be in addition to, not instead of. Everyone who receives this vaccine must receive this fact sheet and there's actually packets that are being assembled with the fact sheet and you know, some other supplies um, that would be used to administer uh, the vaccine. Um, so a consent could in, in theory be labeled on top of it. Obviously it needs to be consistent with the information in the fact sheet. And you could see the consent really going where the fact sheet doesn't. So standard consent to treat language. You are still vaccinating someone, you're still, you know putting a needle in their arm and you will want most likely some kind of signature that they've agreed to get it. You could also cover in that consent form all sorts of information you would not expect the EU fact sheet to cover. So for example, um, information about their obligation to come back for a second dose, um, information about uh, the availability of sick days or other um, employee benefits if they do suffer um, adverse events. Um, information that they're still expected, for example, to participate in contact tracing and other types of safeguards, notwithstanding the fact they've been vaccinated. Of course, there's great hope that if you are vaccinated, you cannot spread the virus to others, but that is not something that has necessarily been confirmed in the, you know, the information that we have to date under the warp speed process. I think another place where we can expect um, the consent is to really talk about data. What information is going to be collected and where is it going to go? 
The current fact sheet uh, talks about the need for the institution performing the vaccination to report up to certain state uh, vaccine registries. These are these registries will be used, uh, for example, to track that people got both doses. If you appear for your second dose to make sure you weren't already uh, vaccinated, um, as well as ongoing monitoring and adverse event tracking. But there's other data sharing uh, that is at issue here. For example, um, if a healthcare provider has looked to a different healthcare provider to actually perform um, the vaccine, um, there would be data sharing between those two institutions. In this first phase 1A, all of, all of these individuals um, that are patients or healthcare providers when we're talking about our healthcare provider setting. So they're wearing two hats and you could imagine this consent navigating some of that dual identity. You're a patient, you're also an employee um, and using this consent to explore some of those issues. Um, we're also talking with clients about um, explaining the degree of identifiability of the data that's being shared. Um, will names be shared? Uh, will addresses and contact information be shared? Um, with whom and why? So being prepared to talk about that, not just disclose it, but explain why it's important. Really being prepared to have a conversation. Yes, they need your name because. I think sometimes um, one of the reasons people are nervous is they don't understand why that information uh, needs to be collected and really what they get out of it. How could this information be used to take care of them? Um, and then finally, I think questions about the ongoing secondary use of this information. We, it, it is difficult to overstate what we are embarking on right now. Um, it, it's difficult to overstate what we've, what we've lived through. And um, we are about to have so much information in real time about who's receiving the vaccine, how they did, what is their um, subsequent COVID history, but also how is it, what, what differences do we see uh, across different kinds of patient populations, uh, comorbidities. Um, we are gonna have some tough questions about uh, whether pregnant women, whether breastfeeding women should get this vaccine, whether children under the age of 16 should get this vaccine. So you can imagine that this is a, a treasure trove of data, given that we couldn't do the standard multi-year clinical trials that you often see with drug development. So deciding whether your consent should address research, I think is a really important uh, question. Of course, you can always go back and ask permission, but that is a, you know, a massive um, challenge um, under any circumstances. So thinking now about whether or not you see yourself wanting to use that information in an identifiable format, in a de-identified format. Um, you know, COVID is going to be with us for a while and we're gonna have long-term questions about this vaccine and, and building in some flex in the joints to make sure that we can mine it and understand it, I think is gonna be important. The last thing I would say is uh, making sure that recipients understand that even if we're not doing research, all of the normal HIPAA rules governing how this information um, are, can be used are still in play. So for example, there are broad exceptions under HIPAA for uses and disclosures of identifiable information for public health activities. Uh, a lot of the analysis downstream may fall under that pathway. Um, you can refer your individuals to your notice of privacy practices, uh, which you may wanna do because some of these individuals may never have been your patient before. They've been your workforce, but they haven't been your patient. So, Thinking through those questions. The last thing I would say about this, Karen, is building in the time. So 
Um, for certain segments of the pot of your workforce population, you really may want to have like an information session um, or a way of, of trying to get out as much information as possible. You may have a consent as well, but it's almost like that's the second time um, that they've heard it to really be sensitive to all the different places that people are coming from. Um, because we are asking our long-term care residents and our healthcare providers to once again be our front line on COVID um, with respect to the vaccine. Right, and I, I think just a couple things to add that are, you, know, you suggested, Jen, that I think are going to continue to be an issue and they're going to be much more pertinent as things spread and we're looking at vaccinating more and more people. And those are some of those questions. You know, some states even, some state departments of health are looking for much more detailed information for folks that are getting the, the vaccine. You know, and some of the information items like prior health history, prior uh, you know, viral infection, does someone have a you know, history of an immunocompromising condition that could even include HIV. It brings to the fore a lot of sensitive information what to do if you're you're pregnant, you know, some of the information collected in one state even posits, you know, do you plan to become pregnant? You know, that, that again, opens a whole treasure trove of not only privacy information, but also goes back to who is actually going to get the injection and when they're going to get it, and are they going to have any reasons to say that, that they don't want to or they should not. And the informed piece of informed consent is making sure that the, the patient or here the employer staff member recognizes the risks and benefits. And as you've identified, that vaccine information sheet is gonna to continue to change over time. Um, people are very influenced by the world we live in, which is you know, a 24 seven media culture with you know, good information, bad information, and completely crazy information at everybody's fingertips at any time of day. And I think those things speak to why a coordinated effort to make sure that you know, first these limited populations and then the broader populations have access to good information on the vaccine and what is known and when it is known is going to be very important. All right, Jen and Sandy, more questions for you. There are obviously lots of record keeping and reporting obligations in connection with administering this vaccine. And as you know, and as you just said, Jen, this will be changing as more vaccines come out. So what are some of the issues that hospitals need to be aware of that are new or different from, let's say, the flu vaccine or prior record keeping requirements? Sure. Um, so first, I know we've said it before, but it's a two-dose vaccine. So I think, you know, first and foremost, um, really thinking through how you're going to track when the first dose was given, when someone's supposed to come back for the second dose, and that they've actually gotten the second dose. This uh, may be rel relatively, and I stress that term, easy um, for a long-term care population, and maybe even for some uh, healthcare workers. But I think where you're going to see some challenges is when you're inoculating the healthcare staff of a different institution, um, as well as you know, inoculating members of your workforce um, that may have uh, different types of work schedules. Are they coming in on a day that they work? Are they coming in specifically on a day that they do not work? Um, is it a specific time slot? Where do they go? How do you handle that? So um, really road mapping. I mean, I, this is just a massive scheduling exercise, but um, thinking through it from the beginning and, and almost slotting um, people in and building in a reminder system. I think the second is keeping track of the various reporting obligations. So we know there's going to be 
paper vaccine cards that are going to be distributed. Um, this has a little bit of a back to the future, back to the back um, feel. Um, and this is to allow people to take some record that they indeed have been vaccinated. Maybe they can't remember which day, um, what day they're supposed to come back. These have to be manually completed. So again, building into your process, some kind of reminder that people should not leave their um, vaccination uh, moment encounter without that card being completed. That is different than a flu shot. Um, you know, sometimes if you get a flu shot, you get a receipt, um, uh, but you're not filling out a card and you're not keeping something that needs to be filled out um, over time. Um, I think really careful information about adverse events. So, you know, typically again, you have a, a flu shot, Karen, you leave the local pharmacy, you don't think about it again. Um, the fact that your you know, shoulder hurts a bit that evening is an inconvenience, but you know, not something that you keep track of. Here, I think we could be having some really dedicated ongoing um, tracking information from various sources. Those could be government sources. They could also be the employers themselves and they could be researchers within those employers who are again, trying to, to gather information in real time. Those all overlap. Some of those may be highly identifiable. Some of those may be less identifiable. Um, I think we need to be prepared for conflicting records. Um, I think everyone should go into this with someone showing up that says they're due for um, a second dose and other systems say that they're not. Um, and beginning, to, I think that is all but inevitable um, given the various systems. And especially as we get into later phases, um, whether or not people will have to get both doses at the same institution. You know, if you get the first one here, do you have to go back and get the second one? Um, can you get one closer to home? Does an entire family have to receive their vaccine from a similar place? These are all you know, open, open questions. Um, so thinking through the adverse event reporting, the ongoing tracking and the conflicting records. Um, and then I, I also think um, really working on your contract between healthcare institutions or down the line between other types of employers and healthcare institutions that may be doing widespread vaccine rollout. Um, that will be a nice problem to have when we, when we get to the place where um, employers uh, who are outside of the healthcare system really are in a position to enable this for their employees. But beginning to think through um, the financial terms, um, the information sharing terms, the record keeping terms, none of that is, is typically in play in any of our basic analogs um, for vaccines. And I think now is the time to think about it. So the minute we have the necessary volume of vaccine to begin to move out of these phases, um, we're ready to hit the ground running. I, I don't think there's um, any reason not to begin laying the groundwork for that. And I think one other factor that weighs into some of what you just spoke about, Jen, is you know, we have no good analogs for this. And there is going to be a lot more interplay and interaction with these vaccination locations and the individuals receiving the vaccination, whether they are employees, eventually patients or others in the community. That calls into mind, and it will be interesting to see how it develops about whether or not that means that the individuals that are receiving the vaccines and having these interactions with the healthcare providers are then considered patients in the classic sense of what is a patient, because that opens a whole you know, additional box of potential issues of how those interactions occur, what records are kept, where they are kept. Um, you know, at this point, I think the, the 
perspective has been that we're treating it almost like a prior vaccination history you know, on steroids amped up a bit so that we're providing for these extra factors that we need to keep track of and then information gathering and storage, but without trying to construe that all of these individuals are suddenly the patient of the provider that is giving them the vaccination. Great, thanks, Sandy. Um, Jen, I think you mentioned research. And I think if we can go back to that for a minute, because obviously there are great opportunities to gather additional data to support associated research. So what additional items should hospitals be thinking about if in fact some of this data will be used in furtherance of research and how does that connect to the consent issues? Sure, I, I think COVID overall is uh, a great accelerant for a public conversation about research. All of us have now had a, a close, in some cases, extremely close and, and tragic encounter with a major healthcare event. And I think it, it, it can help um, clarify why research is so important. And in a lot of cases, it just sounds like a faraway topic and, and the average person only sees the risks attendant to research, the discomfort, the side effects, the information gathering. And I think all of us now are about to be the recipients of research and we all owe an enormous debt of gratitude to the individuals who are willing to be in these vaccine trials. Um, we need to be preparing for a long-term data need around COVID. I know we all want this to be over, but um, we have long-term healthcare questions um, that are going to require data, not just from within institutions, but across institutions. And I think that Many aspects, Karen, of COVID have laid bare the fact that we don't have a, a good data infrastructure. We don't know how to curate data. We don't know how to use data in a consistent way across institutions. It's a bit of the Tower of Babel. Um, and we aren't going to fix that problem overnight. But one thing we, we can be doing, at least, is preparing uh, the individuals we're interacting with, which will be millions and millions and millions of individuals over the next six to nine months, but they have the opportunity to participate in something really important. So first of all, think about including research in your consent forms um, or as a standalone consent form so that they can they get the vaccine no matter what, uh, but you give them the opportunity to participate in research and think about creating some enthusiasm around that. Um, I think people do feel gratitude. Um, think about de-identification, um, make it clear that um, Research can happen with de-identified data. That isn't something that currently requires, um, in most cases, consent and authorization. Institutions can begin to be thinking about how they're going to link and de-identify data uh, to use that for research. And, and we're aware of a number of multi-institution data lakes and data collaborations um, that are teaming up um, in order to reach that kind of statistically significant denominator um, that you need um, for, for research. Um, think about um, obtaining additional biospecimens. So um, if you're going to uh, be vaccinating someone, especially maybe someone with whom you would not otherwise have a health encounter, do you wanna take a cheek swab? What would you use that for? Um, what type of information, what type of study might that further? Um, it may not be the right thing for you. You may not be the kind of institution that's in a position to do that and, and uh, just gathering data to gather it you know, often is, um, not worth the trouble, but um, thinking about uh, the type of information you would want wrapped around 
how the information that we're going to have on the vaccine side, um, I think is important. The last thing I would say is build in the right or the ability or the notice to contact people in the future. Um, maybe right now folks are stressed, frightened. I mean, I think a lot of us are exhausted um, and we want the vaccine and we don't want to read a single additional form that we don't have to. And uh, we don't have to read a research consent form. We're just going to decline. I understand that. Um, maybe there's an opportunity just to be uh, registered essentially in a research phone book of sorts where um, you understand that an institution may at a future date reach out to you um, and invite you to participate. Anything I think Karen that builds in some elasticity, um, the ability to have some options um, down the line, because I think the worst feeling will be, we know the answer is buried in that data somewhere and we're not sure we can go, uh, we can go look for it. And I think that's what we wanna to try to avoid. Great, thank you. Well, I think as all of your comments have proven is that this is complex as complex can be today. And I think we all agree that it's only going to get more complicated for our hospital and health system clients as the number of vaccines increases and obviously the volume of the vaccinations is required. So with that, we know lots more will come down the pike but why don't each of you make a prediction about what's next and some other issues our hospitals and health system clients should start keeping an eye on or start thinking about? So I'm happy to kick it off because from the policy perspective, I think we are all weighted in baited bets to see if Congress can act and sort of build upon the COVID relief that it's done in the past. They are actively working on it. We've seen numerous different proposals, but I think the question now is now that we have the vaccine, are they gonna put funding forward to it? Are they gonna support state efforts? Are they gonna figure out different ways to sort of um, accelerate, you know, not just this vaccine in this tranche, but, you know, in future ways of getting, you know, minorities involved thinking of how, how to outreach to publicity all of that I think is gonna be really important next steps. I think we could see something this week or we could see something next year, but I don't think they will just sit on their hands and do nothing. It's too major of a priority issue. And I think like you said, as everyone has said, it, it keeps evolving. And so I, I think the need will not go away and it'll just be sort of how to address it in different formats and ways. And so we'll be monitoring that closely. And the, the M plus side has, you know, always a lot of teams, not just following the regulatory flexibilities, but also the legislative changes, the different funding opportunities and all of that will be resources that we can provide to you guys. Great, thanks, Kristen. Michelle, how about you from the em employment law perspective? From the employment law perspective, I think what we can expect is as always, a wave of employment litigation. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. So I think where employers are gonna be very prudent is on the front end, working through some of these um, issues that we discussed today, the potential for missteps in applying exceptions on an unequal basis, uh, the potential for having a brilliant plan in writing but not preparing or properly preparing our HR professionals and our managers with talking points about how to communicate what we are doing to our employees. Um, what we've seen throughout this COVID-19 pandemic is that it's equally important not only to have a great plan, 
but also to have great people who are trained up on the plan and able to communicate all the ways we are pr pr protecting our employees every single day. Um, and the vaccine is no different. We're gonna wanna make sure that we have our uh, physicians, our, our managers uh, trained up on uh, being able to respond to employee questions, uh, being able to direct employees to the right people who will be able to respond to their questions because we can't train up everybody necessarily. Um, and making sure that we uh, have a unified message so that uh, there's no confusion or complication. Great, thanks. And Michelle, I know we have litigators who are watching this very closely and Sandy, maybe you can chime in on this as well, but there is the PREP Act. What are people's thoughts about the immunities that exist there and what may exist in the future under the PREP Act? Yeah, we're, I'll start, uh, Sandy, and you can jump in to fill in the blanks, but we're looking at the PREP Act right now and how it might pro provide some immunities and protections for uh, covered people uh, and whether that might extend potentially to some of the employment law risk uh, that would otherwise get swept into workers' comp. And so uh, where in particular, we're looking to see that there may be some protection is for those employers that are healthcare employers that may be administering the vaccine themselves um, or setting up uh, vaccination uh, uh, stations where employees can come and get the vaccine. Uh, and whether the PrEP Act may in fact provide some additional immunities in those cases. Right, and, and that could extend, you know, I think, litigators and others are looking closely at this and, and thinking of where it may be able to be best unrolled and taken you know, advantage of for the benefits it can provide and the protections for those institutions that are doing these sorts of activities. You know, there's a lot of risk there. You know, everything from silly things like a slip and fall when someone's there to get a, receive a vaccination to someone who has you know, a really unfortunate adverse event or some sort of lingering impact you know, and the ability to know that there's protection for that is hopefully going to continue to incentivize some of these providers to actually provide this service. Um, so that's where the focus is at this point. And since the PrEP Act does preempt some similar state laws, it does provide protection even in a state, for example, where other immunities that may have been in place earlier in the pandemic have now expired, as is the case in many places, uh, the PrEP Act may still be able to step in and be of assistance. And what's your what's next? Prediction. My, in my what's next is uh, relates a, a bit to what I spoke about with healthcare workers, and it comes down to what happens when we're no longer talking about what is, in some ways, a more obvious category of healthcare workers, and we're talking about essential workers. That what is an essential workforce has been a huge issue throughout this pandemic, from everything involving you know, business closures to who gets to go to work in an office or location, or who stays home, and. Uh, that definition is sort of varies. Some states look at it differently. The uh, CESA organization, the federal definition and listing of different workplace categories has been one that many have relied upon. You know, but what's going to end up being an essential worker, just using healthcare workers again as an example, that definition from a CESA perspective is incredibly broad and would include someone you know, sitting in an office you know, a mile away from a hospital is that really how the essential workforce is going to be viewed or are there going to be some sort of enforced or established uh, tiers and triaging of those types of workers so that you there's no question or there's less state variation? I think there's a little bit of time on that, but I suspect it's something that's being looked at and some of it may depend in part on how this first rollout with the healthcare workforce goes. 
Um, I think those issues and some of the foibles that may arise as they try to implement that system on a small scale early in the vaccination cycle is something that will hopefully inform the essential workforce discussion later. Well, Jen, what are your predictions um, in the months to come? What should clients be keeping their eyes on? Yeah, just, just a couple things. So one, um, you know, as Kristen mentioned, the government is providing financial assistance um, as part of this, um, but I think careful financial documentation, record keeping, um, really thinking through and anticipating um, perhaps some, some hiccups down the line in terms of um, you know, what institutions were paid, what they weren't paid and, and so forth. Um, I think questions about how we look forward to you know, vaccine round number two, thinking about this as an ongoing effort and, and really keeping track of what we can learn now to make the, the next um, time we have to do this whenever that is as smooth as possible. Um, I, I think another um, in, in important thing is going to be um, the, the way in which we've all become acclimated to receive our care digitally. And um, while we all yearn to go you know, out to dinner and to go to the movies and um, speaking for myself, use carpool again, um, we you know, may not uh, be as eager to sit for a long waiting time in a, in a waiting room or um, get care in person that we think we can better manage at home. So um, really reimagining re what healthcare delivery is going to look like when digital health is not um, some funky bells and whistles, but is an integrated part of care. We're not there yet and we have a way to go, but I think we've had a massive public experiment in digital health um, that could spur innovation. I think the flip side to that is the backlog of quote elective procedures. And I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. Elective does not mean cosmetic. These are procedures that people need um, these are, you know, dental visits and, you know, minor surgical procedures and all sorts of things that um, we haven't been getting um, because it wasn't deemed safe. And how do we catch up with that? How do we process that? How do we prioritize this? It's almost like a second um, uh, uh, triage exercise that um, uh, we will begin have to begin to think about and make some difficult choices. And then finally, I would say, um, COVID is fundamentally a public health disaster. And um, thinking about how people experience their health outside of an acute clinical encounter, how we think about real world evidence and real world data has been something that has been on people's minds for a long time. But I think COVID has really accelerated uh, a recognition that we need to gather that data. So I would look for um, increasing efforts um, as we emerge from this uh, to sort of reimagine our data infrastructure and architecture. And I second that, Jen, I think that's a great note to end on, which is all of our hospitals and health systems were reimagining how they deliver healthcare before this, but the pandemic certainly accelerated trends and things that will inure to all of our benefit in the future. So I think you're right to point out that that's, that is uh, one of the silver linings that will come from COVID. So with that, you all, thank you so much for your time and your insights. I think this is the first of many discussions as these issues evolve and become more clear and um, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you all. <laughs>